You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 146, coming up on that big 150 mark. Uh, This is Nathan Gilmore. I'm an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm joined on the line this morning by David Grubbs, professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas. David, how is Kansas this morning? Um, Overcast, dark, mid-60s, something like that. All right, all right. I, I, actually, Kansas and Georgia are more similar than they usually are this morning, then. Uh, <laughs> let's see if we can go for uh, three for three on the climate uh, question, because I am also joined by Michael Farmer, Assistant Professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Michael, uh, what's the sky look like in Minnesota? It's overcast and dark, but it is 45 degrees, not, not mid-60s. Well, two out of three ain't bad, Meatloaf told me once. So, By the uh, way, I, I should announce at the outset that if I sound odd, it's because I'm recording from my computer's microphone, not my headset. And if I don't sound odd, it's because our intern, Zach, was able to make it sound normal anyway. And our intern, Zach, is a ninja. <laughs> well, before we jump into today's subject matter, I want to remind our listeners that our new show in the Christian Humanist Radio Network is live. You can subscribe to it. You can download it. It's called Book of Nature. It's a discussion of science and faith, mathematics and faith, all kinds of groovy things of that nature. The first episode was a good one. I listened to it last week, and I encourage you all to do the same. Also, They sure got into the swing of things much faster than we did. Yep. Well, I mean, you guys were, you know, saddled with me, so I, <laughs> you know, that, that'll slow any project down. Uh, but remember, also, you can download uh, Christian Humanist Profiles, where we interview current authors, as well as Christian Feminist Podcast, uh, which is another show in our network, gender, faith, the intersection of those sorts of things. All kinds of shows to listen to. I encourage you to enjoy them. Hey, any word on when Sectarian Review is going to be coming? Um, when I asked Danny, he said that he's planning on getting the first episode out. Would you quit asking me that? <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> no, I, I listeners, Danny Anderson that said no such thing. He's actually a very gracious human being. I was going for the cheap laugh there. Uh, No, I'm not sure when that's coming out, but hopefully soon, because I think it's going to be a good show. Well, this week, good listeners, uh, we're going to do one of our Bible episodes. So those of you who uh, wait for us to get biblical uh, in the intervals between, you know, getting biblical, this is your time to listen. Uh, We're talking about (laughs) Psalm 119, and David, you and I work a fair bit with Old English alliterative verse. 
And our listeners certainly know about the sonnet forms and rhyme. And, you know, every kind of poetry kind of does its own thing. Hebrew poetry has its own project and has its own ways of being poetic. Tell our listeners briefly what marks Hebrew verse as verse as opposed to prose. And if you get around to it, tell them about the acrostic structure of Psalm 119. Sweet. Okay. So Hebrew poetry, I'm, I'm, since I don't read Hebrew, <laughs> I'm having to rely on secondary sources on this. Um, I am told that if you are attuned to um, the Hebrew language that you can detect uses of rhythm in Hebrew poetry, but that there is no set meter and that attempts at uh, finding finding some kind of uh, rules of Hebrew poetic metrics are uh, have driven people in the past crazy and are so doomed to failure. Um, so we're not going to look at rhythm there. Um, instead, there's a kind of uh, almost more thematic or or topical rhythm in and that is parallelism. Uh, in, instead of finding finding the rhythm in the sounds of the words, you find patterns in the rhythms of ideas. Uh, three main kinds of parallelism, though uh, the stuff that I read got into more and more and more kinds of parallelism, and it got to where I couldn't tell the differences between them, so I'm just going to stick to the basic three. <laughs> Welcome uh, to Old Testament studies. <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? Um, the first is synonymous parallelism, in which um, there will be uh, multiple phrases or multiple clauses in in a a verse of poetry that uh, that are synonymous to each other in their content. So, in Psalm one, "Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked." nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And so you've got those three mm -hmm. clauses, uh, each of which say a very similar thing, but also have a similar grammatical structure. You know, verb in the noun of the bad people. Verb in the noun of the bad people. All right. <laughs> Synonymous parallel. Uh, also, uh, Opposite to that, haha, is antithetical parallelism, in which you have clauses that say uh, contrasting things, not parallel things, or, or, or synonymous things. So the last verse of Psalm 1, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So you've got this, uh, a, a contrast working there, an antithesis. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked will perish. Mm-hmm. Uh, third kind, which is uh, a little a little more difficult, is synthetic parallelism, in which successive clauses um, are not precisely synonymous, but they kind of build on each other. Um, and so synthetic, building. And verse 3 of Psalm 1, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. All right. So you have those those four successive lines, not exactly parallel. They aren't all saying exactly the same thing, but each one builds this uh, this growing image of a tree, mm -hmm. uh, one after the other. So synthetic parallel. Uh, another trait, and this is this is more in the arrangement of words than it is the arrangement of concepts, is the chiasmus. Um, 
which is a, a structure in which the first phrase um, has a form that is inverted in the second phrase. So verse 2 of Psalm 1, his delight is in the law of the Lord, but on his law he meditates day and night. So in the first line you have his action is in the law of the Lord, and then the second line, on the law, he meditates day and night. So his action, the law, the law, his action. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, if you connect the dots between those two, if you have one line on top of the other and connect the dots, you make an X or a Greek key, and so it gets called a chiasmus. So, yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's what this guy who doesn't know Hebrew... <laughs> <laughs> can do can do with it with Hebrew poetry briefly. Um, Psalm one nineteen is also a special case in that it's an acrostic poem. Um, it has twenty two stanzas, um, each stanza corresponding to a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is not the only acrostic poem in Psalms or even in the Bible. There's also um, uh, there's acrostic poetry in uh, Lamentations, I think. Um, I believe uh, also Proverbs thirty one has some. David, has are those are those other acrostics mm-hmm. like Psalm, uh, Psalm one nineteen, where it just goes through the alphabet, or do they spell something? Uh, they're alphabetic acrostics. Um, I I don't know if um, I don't know if there are acrostic poems that spell words. Oh, too bad. In in the Old Testament, that might be that might right. be a thing. But there does seem to be a fascination in in the culture that was writing this poetry, a fascination with the alphabet itself. Mm-hmm. That uh, that somehow, well, the alphabet contains all possible words. The alphabet contains everything that you could ever say. Right. So, so when you when you do an acrostic that's based on the alphabet, you're in some way saying, you know, what I'm about to say contains the full range of things that could be said or mm-hmm. or bespeaks the the perfection and completeness of the thing talked about. So when the Proverbs 31 woman, it, when, when it's when she's a, an alphabet acrostic, it's, you know, this is the A mm-hmm. to Z of the ideal female. And Psalm 119 kind of does that too, mm-hmm. right? Because it kind of anyway, contains so. most of the genres that are throughout the rest of the book of Psalms. Yes, mm-hmm. and it's all connected to to Torah, um, which is the word of the Lord, the writings, and the writings are written out of the alphabet. So the 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 the, the Hebrew alphabet, in some sense, contains the Torah in potential. Mm-hmm. So, so twenty two stanzas, um, each of eight lines. Each line starts with the letter that that stanza corresponds to. Um, stanza six, Val, Wal, Vav, whatever. Yeah, different would... professors will teach you to pronounce that differently, so either one works. Okay. Well, apparently that one doesn't just start off with that particular letter, but because that letter is the Hebrew word and, mm-hmm. the poet takes on himself or herself, we don't know who wrote it, um, the extra challenge, uh, the second letter uh, of I think most of the stanzas is an aleph, so so it's it's not just 
starting each line with the same letter, but it's the same two letters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything? Anything I missed, Nathan? Probably lots. Oh no no no! I think you did a good job. I mean, I would just add the historical note that actually the scholarship of Hebrew poetry really takes off late in the game. It's a late medieval development in Muslim Spain during the late Middle Ages. Uh, and the formulation of uh, synonymous and antithetical parallelism uh, takes on its classic form not until the 18th century where a, uh, an Anglican bishop named Robert Loth uh, writes a book. Um, oh, and I'm going to have to scan down my notes here. I jotted it down, but now I've forgotten the title of the book. Uh, but it's, it's something along the lines of the poetry of the Old Testament. Um, he actually proposes uh, the parallelism rather than rhyme or meter as the inherent structure of Hebrew poetry. So it's fascinating that, you know, uh, in the medieval Jewish tradition where they were trying so hard to establish a sort of parallel and equal or even superior form to Arab poetry, which is rhymed. They were just looking like crazy for rhyme in the Psalms, which doesn't exist, by the way. Uh, and it wasn't until, you know, someone who, I guess, you know, standing outside of that conflict took a look at it that they finally arrived at parallelism. So it's one of those places where, you know, um, I, I often point to my, my students to that episode to, you know, suggest to them that perhaps, you know, philosophers who are not Christian might teach us to be better Christians because they're not in the middle of the struggle as we are. You guys are. Uh, know more uh, about ancient poetry in general than I do. What does the what is the non-rhyming, non-metrical structure of Hebrew poetry have to do with like Homeric verse or Old English verse? Well, Old English verse. Well, actually, David, you talk about Old English verse, and then I'll take a stab at Homeric. Mm. Uh, old English verse. Has metrics, um, but it's not uh, it's not the iambic pentameter of a sonnet, or uh, it's it's not that kind of regular meter. Um, each line of of Old English verse is divided into two uh, what two half lines, and each half line um, can have an an independent pattern of rhythm. Um, it might be, um, you know. Weak, strong, weak, strong, weak, weak, strong, uh, weak, weak, strong, and, and and all of them have have different names, you know, an A line, a B line, uh, you know, and things like that. So that uh, reading Hebrew poetry is like da 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 da. I enjoy da-da. hearing you beatbox and, you know, like that, so David. Forth. I wish you would do it more often. <laughs> well, that's we only go this way once. Um, so anyway, I, I, I took, um, you know, I've, I've had multiple classes of, of old English translation, but only one in which, um, uh, there was a, a serious emphasis of trying to, to help us get an ear for the old English metrics. Um, sometimes I feel like I get it and sometimes I don't, it really, you have to kind of get into the language, um, and, and feel the inflection of the words. And when you kind of get comfy in that, then you start hearing, you start hearing the rhythms. Um, one of my professors, Steve Glosecki, um, uh, who has passed on peace be upon him. Uh, 
compared it to listening to a meticulous goldsmith uh, hammering out uh, a, a piece of metal that he's working on. So it would be like, tink, 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 tink. And, and, and yeah, that's actually what it, what it sounds like if you hear someone read for the metrics. Hmm. So. Right. And then Homeric, Homeric stuff. <laughs> yeah, Homeric verse, by contrast, you know, doesn't really do much with the alliteration, but it does uh, vowel sound meter. So you're not mm. listening ne necessarily for accents so much as for long vowel sounds and short vowel sounds. Mm. Uh, so Homer's verse is composed in dactylic hexameter. Hexameter, of course, meaning that there are six long vowels in each line. Uh, and then, you know, instead of being written in iams like a, a, uh, like a sonnet would be, uh, it's written in dactyls, so what it's supposed to imitate is the flight of a uh, prehistoric flying reptile. And uh, yes, listeners, I did just make that <laughs> joke. I regret nothing. Uh, but <laughs> uh, so, I mean, what you get with a Homeric verse is, you know, da 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 da, and you know, it is not rhymed. Uh, you know, just as Anglo-Saxon is not rhymed, just as Hebrew is not rhymed. Uh, but it is something that a, an improvisational poet uh, could basically memorize a set of stock phrases uh, like the wine dark sea or like Odysseus never at a loss for words uh, that are themselves composed of those dactylic half lines. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's like Anglo-Saxon poetry in that respect that you know, the structure of the poetry indicates that it was probably an oral performance well mm -hmm. before it was a written form. Right. And, and ironic that the line, Odysseus never at a loss word for words, should be a stock phrase for a you know, poet. Be careful. What would, uh, would C.S. Lewis yes, tell you about why, why the poets repeat the lines? They, they don't just do it for themselves, he says. There's a, there's a ceremonial function for those listening. <laughs> <laughs> all, all of these ancient there poetic forms are useful when you're teaching intro to lit classes because you can ask that question, what is poetry, and confound any answer they give you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that, that's actually how I introduced verse in my intro to lit class this semester by looking at, you know, Homeric verse versus Hebrew verse versus ancient Egyptian verse versus Arab verse versus Persian versus Old English. And, you know, kind of talking about how the family resemblance, to borrow a phrase from Wittgenstein, is this difference. It's a, it's a departure from prosaic conversational speech, uh, but there is no single common thread that makes all verse Oh, well, except that it expresses verse. the personal feelings of the author. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> all right michael since you're being a stinker um i want to talk a little bit about the place of the psalms and the worship traditions we inhabit michael you go first and then pass it on to david talk about the church you attend now or about churches you've attended in the days gone by but what place have the psalms had in your experience of christian worship? Uh, the church i attend now is a uh, a presbyterian church uh, and and we, for a while, were doing a psalm of the week that the entire congregation would read out. Uh, we have stopped doing that. I'm not sure why. 
I have I have never regularly attended another Protestant church that did uh, regular psalm readings, which is interesting, because most of the churches I've attended as an adult have been Presbyterian, and and Calvin rather famously liked the psalms in worship. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah. so, uh, right. Like, so, like so um, <laughs> that that is interesting in itself. The only the only church I've attended uh, that makes regular use of the Psalms was the Orthodox Church I attended sometimes in college, and they they regularly, of course, use the, the Psalms in liturgy, including the Psalms that most churches never use, uh, the the famous imprecatory Psalms, the one that the the ones that call on God to break the teeth of the wicked and. You know, make make orphans of his children and things like that. The Orthodox are only too happy to to chant those in their service. Uh, you know, and good for them because it's in there. We're supposed to do something with it. Um, the place I get the Psalms mostly mm-hmm. is I I begin most of my days by reading the um, order of service from the Book of Common Prayer for for that day, and that goes through two Psalms every day. So you go through the Psalms in what seventy five days. Uh, probably more because they break up one nineteen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you can't. Yeah. You're certainly not going to do two so. songs the day you do one nineteen. <laughs> but for for the most part, Ooh. the churches I, I have I have been a member of have not uh, have not done organized readings of the psalms in that way. Oh, fascinating! I, I would have figured, like you said, that Presbyterians would be right, and maybe maybe there are Presbyterian reading. churches that do. How about yours, David? lived in Athens, Georgia. We attended two Presbyterian churches, first uh, Redeemer Presbyterian for several years uh, downtown, and then later Resurrection Presbyterian uh, church plant from Redeemer on the east side of town. Both of those churches had Old and New Testament readings in the, uh, in the services, and so sometimes it was a psalm, but there was no regular psalm being read. Mm. Okay. So um, the first time, actually, I, I've ever been in a church where a psalm was read every Sunday is the church that we attend now, um, a, uh, a Bible church in, in McPherson. And each, uh, each Sunday, uh, the pastor, after, after announcements, reads, uh, reads a psalm. You know, this is so. This is this is the first church I've ever been in that 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 regularly spent time in the Psalms, hmm. though though not the first one that I've ever been in that regularly read text from the Bible in the service that were not the topic of the sermon. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, but the Psalms have been, um, especially through my childhood and on into high school, it was part of family worship at my home. Um, we would get up in the morning and we would read five psalms and a proverb each day. Um, and on on months that had 31 days, on the 31st day, we would read Psalm 119 and and Proverbs 31. Hmm. So um, most months we got through all the psalms and all the proverbs in the month. Um, if it was a 30-day if it was a 30-day month, we didn't get to Psalm 119. We didn't get to Proverbs 31. Okay. So I, I, I grew up with the Psalms pretty – as a big part of my own personal um, and family devotional life, but not part of the liturgy. It's a very rigorous uh, 
family worship service. David, did you read from the New Testament or other books from the Old Testament as well? Um, not in the morning. It was just Psalms and Proverbs out of the King James. Hmm. And, and we would uh, also we would ignore verse distinctions, and we took turns reading. So you basically you 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 started reading at the beginning of a sentence. And if that sentence didn't end um, at the end of the verse, you kept reading until oh. you hit until you hit a period or a question mark or an, another terminal punctuation. So you know some of the psalms, you know, we would always dread if 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 the rotation hit us, we would pretty much just be reading half of the thing because they just kept going <laughs> on and on and on. Um. Uh, we loved Psalm 117. Uh, that was probably our favorite. <laughs> and uh, oh, the, the the Psalms that have the "For His mercy endureth forever." Mm-hmm. Um, in in the King James, we loved that one because you know he slew kings for his mercy endureth forever, and mighty kings for his mercy endureth forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, for his mercy endureth forever. Anyway, we we love that his mercy endureth forever, slaying kings. Yeah, as far as my experiences go, I mean, uh, the only psalm, the only uh, congregation where we did regular psalm readings was actually a disciples of uh, disciples of Christ Church. I was a member of uh, for a couple years there, uh, and it was largely at, at my own suggestion. You know, I went to the pastor and suggested that we have, you know, the psalm from the lectionary each week read as part of the service. Uh, mm-hmm. and he promptly put me on that job. So <laughs> it's, it's one of those be careful what you ask for stories. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in, in my own tradition, the uh, Christian churches, churches of Christ, I mean, there's not a whole lot of emphasis on public scripture reading, which is ironic since we think of ourselves as a Bible church, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's one of those things, you know, I, I was actually hoping that, you know, I could say, you know, I wish we could be more like you Presbyterians and, you know, do public psalm readings, but that didn't pan out, did it? (laughs) (laughs) Even Presbyterians aren't Presbyterian anymore. Well, there you go. (laughs) It really depends on the flavor, though. Um, I'm I'm guessing that if we were were living in the Northeast or or someplace where where Presbyterian is more Mm Dutch-flavored, um... I, I don't know. I have I have a I have a suspicion that they may be a little more rigorous than the descendants of the Scots in the South. Any Grand uh, Rapids Presbyterians, please write in and let us know what you do. Or you know the yeah. uh, the OPC. I'm also interested to know. Chinbule, tell mm-hmm. us tell us what you do at your church. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, David, I want to turn to some people who read their songs by grab. Although apparently your family <laughs> had a a nearly monastic discipline. Uh, but I know that the best sorts of monks would chant through the entire Psalter every 30 days or even more often as part of their worship regimen. Mm-hmm. As you've read around in the period, what mention, if any, do medieval writers make of Psalm 119 in particular? Oh, this, this was a challenge because right now I'm not living um, next to a library that's particularly well stocked with medievals. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, <clears throat> but in reading around... Um, in uh, some of the commentaries and, and uh, sermons and things of that nature. Uh, there were some things out of Psalm 119 that, that medievals said pretty much the same things that we did, uh, that we would. Um, oh, but actually, before we get into it, 
Um, do you know what they called Psalm 119 in the Middle Ages? The long no, one. but I imagine it was Latin. Uh, they called it Psalm 118. <laughs> is a trick question. All right, carry yes, on. Yes, 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 because the numbering's different in the Vulgate. Anyway, sorry. Um, that that actually made my job difficult because I was doing word searches uh, for the Oh, numbers. right, right. And, and Kat was like, wait, that verse is not in the chapter. Anyway, so, uh, for instance, uh, the Venerable Bede talking about the very first verse, um, you know, blessed is the one who 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 does the law essentially, and and so he would he would take us he would he would compare it to James and says it's not just the hearer but the doer uh, who is blessed. Um, Theodolf of Orléans uh, quotes Psalm one nineteen. Your word have I uh, have I hid or concealed in my heart that I might not sin against you, and he cites that as his verse for why you should stay in the scriptures to fight sin. Um, some unusual things. Um, the the medievals are much more likely to see uh, to find uh, allusions to Christ in Psalm 119 than I think our instinct would be today. Uh, for instance, because the name Jesus means um, the the Lord's salvation or the Lord saves. Uh, whenever in Psalm 119, salvate the word salvation is mentioned. You know, the psalmist longs for um, the Lord's salvation or asks for it. Um, Bede says he's asking for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, th- those are, those are some, some general tendencies. Probably the biggest effect that Psalm 119 had was on those monks that you were talking about who pray through the Psalter. Uh, this is the rule of Benedict, um, chapter 16. As the prophet says, seven times a day I have given praise to thee. Psalm 119, 164. This sacred sevenfold number will be fulfilled by us in this wise. If we perform the duties of our service at the times of lauds, prime, terse, sex, non, vespers, and complain, because it was of these day hours that he hath said seven times a day I've given praise to thee. So it's it's a verse from Psalm 119 that was their syllabus. <laughs> All right, all right. It was their mandate for for meeting seven times a day to sing the Psalter. Um, And then the same prophet saith of the night watches, at midnight I arose to confess to thee. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 62. So, you know, it's it's why they would uh, have their services uh, seven times a day at the appointed hours and why one of those hours was in the middle of the night. Hmm. Is Psalm 119. So every day of a monk's life was shaped by Psalm 119. Um, not just every day, but also the beginning of a monk's life as a monk in the Benedictine order. Um, part of the order of service when a monk uh, presented himself to the monastery as as a potential brother, they would they would test him and train him in, in various ways. But the culmination of that service would be. Uh, of that of that time of, of of testing and initiation would be when the monk writes down or has written for him a vow that he will uh, keep the order that he will obey the authorities that he will live properly as a monk so help him God and all the saints and then when he has placed that written uh, that written oath on the altar of the chapel, 
quote, let the novice next begin the verse, uphold me, O Lord, according to thy word, and I shall live, and let me not be confounded in my expectations, Psalm 119, 116, then let all the brotherhood repeat this verse three times, adding the Gloria Patri. Hmm. So the, the culmination of, of that service of, of, of entering the Benedictine order, again, was Psalm 119, Lord, uphold me in, in my keeping of my oath. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, Psalm 119, super important cool. if you're a monk. And if you're not a monk too, but especially if you're a monk. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I remembered the bit from the rule of Benedict, and I, I was curious about how that played out in other monastic texts, and I think you've done a good job of, of highlighting that. Well, I wanted to to hold that up as, you know, one uh, manifestation of this sort of Torah piety, uh, as biblical scholars like to talk about it. The other side that I want to look at, uh, I'm going to pitch to Michael, and I want to fast forward to a particularly but not uniquely American phenomenon, specifically fundamentalism. How does Psalm 119's view of Torah, how does that resonate with and how does it depart from the view of the Bible that fundamentalism, and you can start by saying what you mean when you say that word, with how fundamentalism regards the Bible. Well, I have been thinking about this since you sent the question a few days ago, and I cannot figure out if you were trying to get me to condemn fundamentalism on the basis of Psalm 119. I'm not sure. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do that. So I'm going to say what I'm going to say, and then if you want to condemn them, I'll let you. No, I had no idea how you're going to answer it. That's why I posed the question. Okay, so let's uh, let's define fundamentalism. A stipulative definition. Uh, let's say fundamentalism is a species of extreme biblical literalism. Uh, it's essentially sola scriptura taken to its. Uh, I don't want to judge, but uh, extreme. It's 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 the idea that if it's not in the Bible, it's probably not true. And in particular, this is going to arise in the early 20th century as a reaction to uh, theological modernism. So uh, in, in reaction to 19th century liberalism and especially to like uh, Darwinian evolution. Mm-hmm. So uh, doctrines you would see associated with it is, is a literal... Six-day creation, um, often very high uh, emphasis on individual piety and especially the things you're not supposed to do, Uh, distrust of liberals, of Catholics, of Orthodox, if fundamentalists are aware of them, political conservatism, uh, of course, pre-tribulation, rapture, dispensationalism, that whole cluster of things let's define as broadly fundamentalist. Is Is that a reasonable definition to you guys? As a fighting fundy, you've you've hit a lot of the things that I'd put in there. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any strong objections. <laughs> I might say it differently, but you know, I'll say guilty. I, I I suspect that most fundamentalists read Psalm one nineteen and say, "Yes, that's my life," because what what mm-hmm. Psalm what Psalm one nineteen presents is a human life completely oriented around the law or the Torah or, uh, in, in, in the case of fundamentalism, the Bible, right? So, so the, the Bible is a thing that makes straight our path. The Bible is a thing which we must cling to when we are attacked. 
the Bible is a thing that God will use to crush our enemies. Uh, I, I would say, I would say Psalm 119 is in that sense fundamentalist, although because it arises before the modernist, the modernist conflict, it's not fundamentalist. It's it's pre-modern. So um, mm-hmm. I, I, I would say fundamentalists would tend to view their lives as conforming to Psalm 119, and I wouldn't argue with that. They probably conform to it better than I do. To the, mm-hmm. to the extent I'm going to criticize fundamentalism, which I, for whatever reason I'm not terribly interested in doing this morning, um, <laughs> I, I would say that, that perhaps the problem is they're looking too narrowly at Psalm 119 or they're trying to expand its purview beyond what it is. It's a very long psalm, but it's not the only one. It's not the only section of the Bible, and there are other sections of the Bible. Indeed, even other sections of the psalms that seem to present cultural engagement as a as a good thing. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would say living your life by Psalm 119 needs to be tempered at the very least by the psalm, and I, I've forgotten the number, that says the heavens declare the glory of God, right? Which would be a good uh, scientific uh, psalm. In, 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 is that Psalm 8, David? I don't think it is. Um, psalm 8 uh, is, what is what is man that thou art mindful of him. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was also a creation psalm, though, but I... It, it, I but the point is... It, clearly, it, clearly, I don't read my psalms enough. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> you, you, you would, I, I get those crossed in my head all the time, too, Nathan. And I almost never think about the numbers. Uh, but but you, uh, you, you see what I mean that that to to the extent fundamentalism has a problem with the Psalms, it might be in reading them too narrowly. Although, like I say, I'm not terribly interested in beating the fundamentalists over the head with the Psalms this morning. Well, honestly, I wasn't either. I was more interested in the descriptive task. I mean, I when I was reading through Psalm 119, prepping for the verse, you know, I saw passages like. Uh, you know, verse 98 of Psalm 119: "Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies." For it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. <laughs> the, the worst, the worst verse in the Bible. In, in my testimonies are my meditation. Yeah, <laughs> um, and then a little bit later on, I, I'm, I'll come back to that. Don't worry. Uh, you know, one thirteen. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. I mean, it, it, it seems like you know these sort of, uh, and I'm going to use a new historicist term here that I normally try to steer away from, but the self-fashioning of the fundamentalist imagination seems like it draws pretty heavily on this text in particular no i would agree Mm -hmm. with that Mm -hmm. probably and probably for better and for worse the the things that are good about fundamentalism are things that correspond to psalm 119 and the things that (laughs) that irk some of us about fundamentalism uh come from clinging too closely perhaps to psalm 119 Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. david what would you add because i kind of jumped in there before you could (laughs) <laughs> no worry. Um, there's uh, a, a, absolutely Psalm 119 is is a a biblicist's manifesto, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and it's it's not just Psalm 119. I mean, you know, the scriptures, you know, are, through, through throughout throughout the holy writings. There is a testimony of itself, which is which is high. I mean, you 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 won't find a biblical writer saying the word of God, eh. <laughs> um, you know, and 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 you know, not not to say that, you know, I I don't think that Psalm one nineteen necessarily has to mean that no other words are good words, but. Mm-hmm. 
um, I do think it's important to consider um, the the lament psalm aspect of Psalm 119, mm-hmm. that the, uh, the the speaker in the psalm is, is uh, per- perceives uh, him or herself as being particularly embattled, beset, mm-hmm. um, so that you know, so that there are enemies. And those enemies are identified with those who, who reject the law, who reject, you know, its its moral standards, who reject the God that the law presents. So, um, I don't think that I don't think it's any accident that your your perception, Michael, is that the fundamentalists of the early twentieth century latched onto the spirit of Psalm one nineteen because that's precisely how they felt. Sure, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know that if if you are um, Jay Gresham Machen <laughs> in the 19 noughts, looking at more and more divinity schools being peopled by professors who aren't entirely sure whether or not Jesus came from, came back from the dead, um, you're going to feel Psalm 119. Mm-hmm. And you know I think that's a good thing, but I do think that a an added a, a general attitude that is shaped only by the combativeness of Psalm 119 is going to end up being a warped attitude, which is why you know I'm glad there are other things said in the Bible than just Psalm 119. But still, I think you know Psalm 119 is a is an appropriate thing to be feeling. Um, well, often. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, we've talked about the psalm as a big picture, but I'd like to take some time to do some verse-level exposition. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I want each of you to take one of the eight-verse segments that we haven't discussed yet and tell our readers what image, what concept, what phrase, whatever else stands out to you about it. David, you go first and then send it around the horn to Michael, and I'll just uh, make a a humble plea. Uh, Remember that we're running up on time. <laughs> okay, I'm going to. Um, did any of you guys want to do hay? Nope. Okay, sweet deal. I'm going to do hay. Uh, it's verses 33 to 40. And just one simple point um, you can get the impression reading through Psalm 119 if you just skim it that it's all, Lord, your law. It's great. I love it. I love it so mm-hmm. much. I'm going I'm to keep all of it. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also a continual theme throughout 119 of asking God for for grace in that endeavor, and Hay is one of the stanzas that um, hits that particular note often. Um, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding, God, give me understanding, that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Mm-hmm. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies, not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. All right, so um, all but the last verse. Behold, I long for your precepts in your, in your righteousness. Give me life. Um, each of these verses having a a direct petition, God, I need you to act. Um, to your your acting needs to uphold my acting. 
um, mm-hmm. needs to precede it and undergird it and lead it on to a successful completion. Um, so there, there's, there is a lot of kind of belligerent, I love your law, and that guy doesn't hit him in Psalm 119. But I, I think hey, the hey stanza is a, is a good one for offsetting that, offsetting that attitude with a, um, a dependence on God for this project to even work. What a Calvinist answer that is. <laughs> I'm going oh, to follow it up with the stereotypical existentialist answer because I'm going to talk about freedom. And uh, my, my stanza is, I don't speak Hebrew, Heth, 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 uh-huh. 57 through 64. Uh, we, we are inclined, I think, to think about law as a set of precepts that constrict us. Mm. Uh, and And... That is not the way the law is mostly presented here in Psalm 119. So he says, The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep thy words. I entreated thy favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to thy word. I considered my ways and turned my feet to thy testimonies. I hastened and did not delay to keep thy commandments. So far, it still sounds like it might be constricting. But then he says, The cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten thy law. At midnight I shall rise to give thanks to thee because of thy righteous ordinances. I am a companion of all those who fear thee and of those who keep thy precepts. The earth is full of thy loving kindness, O Lord. Teach me thy statutes." It seems to me that what he's saying is in submission to this law, which is, among other things, a set of precepts, um, we are given true freedom. And in fact, it's the false freedom of being apart from the law that is actually the entanglement, that, mm. that it, it, is, it is by submitting our natural freedom. I'm, I'm trying to make this into the social contract, I understand. It's by submitting our natural freedom to, <laughs> to God's governance that we are given uh, a a more genuine spiritual freedom and the possibility you'll notice of spiritual com- uh, communion because uh, the psalmist becomes a companion of all those who fear that he's no longer out there alone. Mm-hmm. So that is that is my thought. Right, and I mean, and more organically, I mean, even if you don't want to go John Locke, I mean, there's that ancient conception that freedom is being ruled well rather than simply a lack of rule. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you see this really throughout that entire very long psalm. One of the things the law mm-hmm. does is sculpt us. It turns us into the person God wants us to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good, good, good. Well, I want to talk about Dalit, which is uh, verses 25 through 32, and it's because this is one of the lament sections of the psalm that, that we've mentioned in passing. Uh, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. So far, so good. Like David said, you know, uh, it starts out with my soul clings to dust, but after that, it starts to sound more like a Torah psalm. But then it cuts into an interesting melding of a confessional psalm and a Torah psalm and a lament psalm. So verse 28, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's this fascinating thing where, uh, you know, the, the second half of verse 30 I find most fascinating. I set your rules before me. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I think that illustrates that complex relationship between you know like we were saying earlier a right rule 
and a glad entrance into that right rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and I think you know if you start out with the binary of you know religion versus relationship, which is the favorite around my campus, or you know <laughs> something like that, you're going to miss some of the richness of what Psalm 119 is doing. Uh, you know, the good stuff is precisely in living with these rules. Mm-hmm. So digging it. Well, Michael, I always enjoy your discourses on con- contemporary church music. So I'm going to tee up one for you here. Uh, Psalm 119, 105 to 112 inspired thy word. One of the most repeated praise choruses of the Amy Grant era. Uh, <laughs> let's grant that as a 30 year old tune, it has aged somewhat. But compared to some of the worship choruses that make us cringe, how does this one stack up? I don't think it's too bad. Um, it, unlike a lot of our contemporary worship choruses, maintains a consistent theme throughout. It is not a list of bumper sticker platitudes. It is, <laughs> it is actually about something. Um, the only part that actually comes directly from the Bible is the, the chorus, right? Thy word is a lamp unto my path, uh, my feet and a light unto my path. And mm-hmm. the rest is uh, kind of a vague paraphrase of the rest of that section. The rest of that section is is half lament, half imprecatory. It mm-hmm. has to do it has to do with feeling um, well, as, as she says, afraid. And I think I've lost my way. And 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 you know, I think that fits very well with that section of the mm-hmm. Psalms and of the Psalm. Uh, what what she loses is the idea there's an enemy out to get her. But uh, I'm not too upset about that. I am as uncomfortable as everybody else praying the imprecatory psalms. (laughs) Um, So I I think thy word, despite its its repetitiveness musically, is actually a a a vision of of what a relatively simple praise chorus can do when adapting the Bible. Mm -hmm. Am I way off here? No, I just wanted to tee you up, see what you did with it. David, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, I I just remember, um, I, I well, we we sang that we sang that uh, that particular chorus in uh, in the church I went to, you know, growing up, the churches I went to growing up, and I would get that song, I would get it kind of stuck in my head, but whenever it was like Psalm 119 morning in my family, we'd get to that part, and I'd be like, wait, that's not the words. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean, I mean, we should, we should admit that compared to the actual psalm, it is not a work of poetry, right? I mean, th- thy word is, is very simple and, and simplistic and doesn't have the depth of emotion or, or mm-hmm. theology that the actual psalm has. Yeah. Though, though the song actually does make that medieval move of bringing it into the Christian era and seeing Christ as the word, yeah, as the word, and as the way that God keeps um, the promises and answers the appeals that come out in the psalm. Yeah. So you know, Bede would like it. Well, there you go. <laughs> the venerable bead and Amy Grant, ladies and gentlemen, I give you David Grubbs. <laughs> anyway. Well, David, unfortunately, I, as is often the case this semester, I'm going to be the one kind of hustling us towards the doors. So let's go ahead and head for the doors and turn, as I so like to do, to questions of Christian education. Uh, if you were to work Psalm 119 into a college course, other than Introduction to Old Testament. <laughs> Where would you place it? 
Yeah, yeah, I anticipated that, didn't I? Where would you place it, and with what text would you pair it, and why? Uh, tell us about your psalmic course. Pass it along to Michael, and then he'll send it the rest of the way around the horn. Oof. Uh, this was a chat. This was this was the hardest question I thought, Michael. Uh, I agree, a hundred percent. Okay. <laughs> um, intro to lit, which I'm teaching right now. Um, it's a it's a good example of of Hebrew um, Hebrew poetry, and so you can kind of talk about the ways that different uh, different cultures have different different ways of of conceiving of the poetic that go with their culture and their language. Uh, but also, uh, I, I was thinking as I was kind of looking at it, I was thinking who who would I pair this with. And I was thinking of the more um, the more self-conscious sonnets um, in uh, like Astrophil and Stella Sonnet One, um, or uh, uh, some of Shakespeare's sonnets when he's very being very self-consciously a poet, thinking about what poetry does. And the uh, and and kind of putting that along some Psalm 119 to talk about the very strong presence of the poet, the voice, of, the voice of the poem, um, in the poetry and treating the, the poem itself as a devotional act in a relationship, though the, the strictures of the relationship are, are, are somewhat different. Um, but not, but not actually that different. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there is, uh, and I, I can't remember the verse in Psalm 119, but there is there is a verse that that talks about, you know, accept the offering of my of my mouth, accept the offering of my lips, which I think is the poem itself. Mm-hmm. So there is this um, this kind of poetic self consciousness that in Psalm 119 that I think can be compared fruitfully with uh, other other poetry like that. Good stuff. Michael? I'm with David. I think you'd have to do it in Intro to Lit class because it doesn't have anything to do uh, in terms of genre or period or country with the person I'm going to pair it with, which is Flannery O'Connor, who <laughs> is uh, always very interested in fundamentalism and and kind of vaguely admires it, even as she makes fun of it. So I think because of the connection to fundamentalism, that works. And also because some of these stanzas are about... Uh, what we might call tragic grace. So uh, in the teth, tet, I don't know, stanza, uh, verse 67, the psalmist writes, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep thy word, which seems to be the very notion of grace in Flannery O'Connor's world, that that you are afflicted and that's how you come to grace. And, and that seems to be what he says. And he says it a couple other places in the psalm as well. So I, I think if, if I had to do what you suggest, which I probably wouldn't, uh, but, 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 but if I had to, that, that is the way I would use it, I think. All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to go a little bit weird and a little bit, uh, you know, off into left field and suggest that this actually might make an interesting reading paired with American transcendentalist writing, uh, namely because, you know, you've got such an emphasis there on sort of discovering guidance in the individual conscience, in the individual connection with the divine unmediated by tradition. Uh, and I mean, set next to those kinds of writings, I mean, Psalm 119's perpetual insistence on Torah as the mediating factor 
that lends divine wisdom to the person, uh, I think would make a, a fascinating discussion. Now, uh, it might be, you know, something that would only work in an upper division, you know, humanities course. I don't know if it'd work with sophomores or not, uh, but it <laughs> seems like it could be an interesting place to really talk about, okay, you know, what is it that we mean when we talk about a life that stands in relationship to heaven? So that, that's kind of what I was thinking of when I wrote the question. I had a hunch neither of you would go that direction, which is why I was confident letting myself go last. There you go. <laughs> awesome. Very good. Uh, well, guys, I want to thank you. I mean, I, I always enjoy Bible episodes. I like talking Bible with you guys largely because our approaches to the text, I mean, so often depart in interesting ways. Uh, next week, David, uh, I actually know what we're doing. It's, it's going to be uh, a bit of deja vu, but do you want to tell our listeners about it? Oh boy. Uh, yeah. Remember that, uh, that feedback episode that we said we were going to do, <laughs> we did it. We totally did it. It just, yeah. <laughs> it just, it was just terrible. It sounded, so, it sounded like a real piece of crap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're going to do that again. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what's on tap for next week. Feedback episode. Yep. So if you've written us emails, if you posted on uh, Facebook, if you've written uh, iTunes reviews, you might hear yourself read next week. So tune in for that. Well, I want to once again thank my co-hosts. I want to thank our listeners. And I want to say that this has been a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our intern is Zach Schmidt. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. You can find us at ChristianHumanist.org. You can email us at TheChristianHumanist at gmail.com. You can go to iTunes. You can go to Facebook. You can go all kinds of groovy places. We're also on Stitcher. So if that's how you listen to your podcast, please listen to us there that way. This is Nathan Gilmore, and in behalf of Michael Farmer, in behalf of David Grubbs, I just want to say to you, oh listener, let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger. So the same